This is not a situation where we simply go into the Internet and start uh, searching any way that we want. This is a circumscribed, narrow system directed at us being able to protect our people. And all of it is done under the oversight of the courts. And as a consequence, we've saved lives. We know of at least 50 threats that have been averted because of this information, not just in the United States, but in some cases, threats here in Germany. That was President Barack Obama in June 2013, defending what was unquestionably the most controversial surveillance program of his administration, the mass collection of Americans' phone records by the National Security Agency. The collection was done under the authorities granted under the Patriot Act, enacted after the terror attacks of 9-11, and it was entirely secret until a whistleblower named Edward Snowden leaked a document about it to the news media. The disclosure created an uproar, revealing that the U.S. government, with no public debate, had created a breathtaking database of hundreds of millions of phone records. Everybody you called, everybody who called you. Obama and his national security officials vigorously pushed back, claiming that the phone collection program had thwarted multiple terrorist attacks. But barely six months later, a White House panel set up to review the program reached a very different conclusion. It could find no major terror plots at all that had been prevented by the program. It was, uh, hello, what are we doing here, said one member of the panel, Jeffrey Stone, a University of Chicago law professor. The one question the White House panel was seeking to answer was whether it had actually stopped any terror attacks that might have been really big. We found none, said Stone. Now there is a fascinating coda to the story. Under a new law called the USA Freedom Act, Congress ultimately modified the surveillance program, mandating that phone companies retain the records of everybody's phone calls and make them available on request to the NSA when the agency felt it needed it for a legitimate terrorist investigation. But it now turns out that the NSA has stopped using the program altogether the result of technical screw-ups that caused them to scoop up phone data it had no legal authority to collect. It's now in doubt whether the Trump administration will even seek a renewal of the phone collection program when it expires later this year. If so, it will be a surprising demise to a vast surveillance operation that was once deemed essential to national security, but upon reflection may have been little more than an expensive, time-consuming dud. It's our subject on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I 
vividly remember the night that The Guardian popped the story about the order that had been given to the FISA court mandating that Verizon turn over phone records. By the way, yes, we should disclose that uh, Skullduggery is a property of Verizon Media. Yeah. I think uh, anybody who uh, listened to our uh, colleague Hunter Walker's uh, Bernie Sanders imitation a week or so ago knows that already. (laughs) But look, yes, in order to Verizon to turn over phone records, um, everybody's phone records to the NSA. It was a, that was a real holy shit moment. I actually remember where I was, too. I was walking my dog down my street. Yeah. It was nighttime. We got the alert, and it was kind of mind-blowing. And so if you think about it, you know, they were collecting every phone log of every American. Right. So potential for vast abuse. We don't know how much abuse there was, but we certainly knew there was the potential for that. So the question was, okay, well, if you're going to do this, then there has to be some really, really important justification for it, which is to say that this is a program that really worked and that was going to save large numbers of lives, prevent, thwart terrorist attacks. And that was the default reaction of the president, of Keith Alexander, who was the director of the NSA, of James Clapper, who had lied about the program or certainly misstated the program when questioned about it by uh, Ron Wyden uh, in a famous moment before the Senate. But what struck me about it, you know, there had been We knew that under Bush there had been the warrantless terrorist surveillance program that was doing this. Completely outside the law. Stellar code name. Right, right. Something that you and I first revealed in Newsweek, as I recall, in 2008. Well, the the, code name. The code name. The the program. Yes, no. The program was was exposed by the New York Times. Although we did do important reporting on that as well. Led to an uproar, and Congress then modified that and set up a new scheme. But we didn't know they were doing this collecting domestic phone records. And what was so striking about it was the way they were doing it, using this provision of the Patriot Act, Section 215, which allowed for the collection of business records in terrorist investigations. And what was so sneaky about this is they were saying that all phone records are needed for any terrorist investigation. Right. right? Was, they were all yeah. relevant. That yeah. was, they're all relevant because they're searching for a needle in the haystack. So right. if you're searching for the needle, then you needed the haystack, which right. is to say all Everybody's phone records ever- of all Americans. Right, right. And, you know, the the uh, the pushback on this was across the board from people on the left who didn't like any surveillance program by the government to, you know, the people on the right, like the NRA. For them, the specter of, well, the government could collect phone records, then they could start collecting records of, uh, gun, of, owners of gun owners. And take and, their guns away. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there really was a bipartisan opposition to it. And, of course, the debate about, you know, is it effective? Is it really stopping any terrorist And how many attacks? times in, in reporting on this story did we ask our sources, cite an example right. where this specific program thwarted a terrorist attack, saved lives? Our sources would always tell us how useful it was, how important it was. 
I never. They couldn't point to a single, point to a single example. example where it really made a difference. So just what's so striking about it this week is, look, we had effectively forgotten about this. We had nobody. We hadn't been thinking about this in recent years. It was such a big deal six years ago. But, you know, a point we've made before, times move on, different issues come up, and we forget about the things we were all exercised about a number of years ago and to learn that the NSA in part because of these technical screw-ups, in part because it probably just wasn't effective, even under its modified form, was had stopped using it, um, was uh, was pretty stunning to me. And we've got the reporter who broke that story about to come on the line, and Charlie by, Savage. Charlie Savage, an yeah. uh, excellent New York Times reporter. And by the way, on this very day that we're recording this podcast, there is another news break that goes to a subject that we covered very closely during the same era, drone strikes. Drone uh, strikes. All of us, Charlie included, right. covered, that, covered that story close, and, closely. And how many innocent civilians are killed by uh, U.S. drone strikes? And uh, Donald Trump uh, just issued a, an executive order uh, that uh, goes to that question of, of whether or not the government needs to notify Congress about the number of civilians killed in those uh, lethal strikes. And we're going to get to that subject as well with Charlie. So bring him on. Let's talk to Charlie. We now have on the line Charlie Savage of the New York Times. Charlie. Hello. Thanks for having me. So quite a story you had the other day about the NSA quietly shutting down this surveillance program that got so much attention six years ago. Were you as surprised as I was to learn that the NSA wasn't using this program anymore? Well, surprised is a a funny word. I, I think I've said elsewhere that I've been actually working on this for a while. In the story I wrote, quoted a NSA spokesman in late January responding to some of my questions about it. I just couldn't nail it in a way that uh, was reportable. And then we had this very odd situation in which the top national security aide to the Republican minority leader in Congress just sort of blurted it out in a podcast on the website Lawfare, speaking of podcasts. And um, there it was, just sort of sitting there as a statement about the world. And so it was an odd way to source the story, but that's what happened. You know, the amazing thing to me is I remember, as you, you do, I'm sure, just how vigorously the Obama administration and its top national security officials defended this program when it was first revealed by Edward Snowden. And they were adamant that this had thwarted terrorist plots. The president himself said lives were saved. And there was a real effort to defend what what the NSA had been very quietly doing with no public debate and no public disclosure of it to learn that they hadn't even been using this program in recent years. I don't know. That was pretty stunning to me, given how important officials at the time said it was. So two things. One is just for your listeners understanding the the program that Snowden revealed in 2013, where records of everyone's phone messages were being sucked in by the National Security Agency and analyzed, uh, is not the same program that existed after 2015 when it was ended and replaced by the USA Freedom Act so that the government was no longer holding systematic records of everyone's 
phone calls, but so they, could yeah, access them. Right. That had been the, the this, metadata program, this, which was being held by the telephone companies, but the government could petition to see those records if they needed to, correct? And they built a whole system that allowed them to not just get one person's records, but very rapidly get the entire universe of calling and text messages from not just their suspect, but everyone who had ever been in contact with their suspect, this sort of large collection of social networks spilling out from their side. So in some ways, it may have been a distinction without a difference because they could still look at it the same way they were looking at it before, but they didn't have the raw database and that maybe certainly it solved some rule of law problems because it was always questionable about whether they had a right to the original program. And it made some people feel like it was less subject to abuse if they didn't have records of people who weren't in some ways connected to someone a judge had determined was possibly a terrorist. Mm -hmm. So that distinction decided about how the program evolved in 2015. What you're talking about in 2013 is when the Snowden leaks came out, there was this defense put forward by people in the Obama administration and in Congress that what was had been revealed was saving lives and so forth. I guess I would quarrel a little bit with the way you, you set it up, Mike, in that I think that a lot of different things were coming out very rapidly in that era, the sort of June 2013. We had the revelation about the phone logs program, and then we went to bed, and the next day we were still digesting that, and we had the revelation of the PRISM program, which was right. you know, the warrantless accessing of non-citizens abroad's messages from systems like Gmail and Yahoo Mail and so forth. And other stuff came in after that. And the what it was that was saving lives, I think when that meme first was put out, it was sort of all of the above. Right. And then when the fight in Congress came to focus on the metadata program, just the phone, domestic phone logs program, people got sloppy in defending it, especially I remember like Mike Rogers, the Republican head of the Intelligence Committee in the House, and he would, they would sort of take that statement and apply it just to this one program rather than to the whole constellation of surveillance right. stuff the NSA was doing generally. And then that was definitely inaccurate. Right. Was, I, that program in particular had never thwarted a terrorist attack, and it was more of a, a theoretical advantage that might be useful tomorrow. It, it helped them when they got a new number triage quickly to make sure there was no one in contact with that person on U.S. soil. But there was no attack that would have happened but for that program. Exactly. Although in preparation for this, I went back and watched uh, Keith Alexander's original testimony before yeah. Senate mm-hmm. Judiciary in which uh, Senator Leahy, Keith Alexander, of course, was the director of NSA at the time. And Leahy was trying to pin him down on exactly that issue when you, at that point, Alexander was saying that dozens of terrorist plots have been thwarted. And Leahy kept trying to say, are you saying because of the Section 215 business records program and Alexander? Alexander was kind of waffling. But let me ask you about the other component of the story, which I was not aware of, which is that at some point the NSA discovers that it's scooping up and collecting records that it did not have the legal authority to collect from the phone companies. And this kind of polluted the entire system. Tell us about that. That's right. So this was disclosed last summer by the NSA, to their credit. Part of what they said then was this thing wasn't working, there were technical problems, therefore they had to delete their entire database of hundreds of millions of call records that they had collected since 
that revision happened in 2015 since the Freedom Act. And just, the sense then was that they were starting over, that they had collected stuff and they had a right to collect and some stuff they didn't have a right to collect. It was impossible to go back and disaggregate the one from the other. I think the impression everyone had then was, okay, they were just going to wipe it clean, fix the system, and everything that flowed into the new database would be okay and life would go on. And it doesn't seem to have been a problem, by the way, so much on the NSA end as on the telecoms end. You know, notably Ron Wyden, who you just referenced, maybe it was Leahy, anyway, mm-hmm. Wyden was saying, who's always a critic of the NSA, was right. notably not blaming them for this and was blaming the telecoms for not being careful about what records they fed back to the agency. And what were the what orders. were the records that were being turned over that they shouldn't have turned over? This is murky. I do not have my hands around this. I was able to go further than the official statement because the general counsel of the NSA last summer, Glenn Gerstel, told me on the record that a little bit more, but it was still kind of like, then you drill down, what exactly are you talking about? And it gets vague. But the notion was, they would have, we have a terrorism suspect. It's Dan Clayman. And the judge would say, yes, Dan Clayman is a terrorist. And so they would go to, and pulse this system that goes to AT&T and Verizon and Sprint and all the other companies and say, give us Dan Clayman's phone records. Whichever company Dan was a customer of or companies, if he had more than one account, would return all the numbers of people he had sent or received phone calls or messages from going back as far in time as they kept those records, which might be many years. And then the way the system works is they take all those numbers and they would feed them back into the system and all the phone companies would then deliver the calling records going back into time of everyone who had one of those numbers. So they would get everyone else those people had ever been in contact with. And something was happening where the, in that first hop, when they said, here are Dan Clayman's records, I'm sorry, Dan, to make you into a yeah. bad guy here. You're turn, well, you know, uh, turn me into a civil libertarian absolutist, <laughs> yeah. hearing that they're going through my phone uh, records like that. They were uh, delivering a large number of records that were accurate. People that Dan really had received or uh-huh. phone calls and text messages from or to. But they were also mixing in some bad numbers. And then when they fed those bad numbers back in, they were getting the entire calling histories of people who had never been in contact with Dan. And the law did not give them a right to suck in that bulk calling history of those other people. And so it was polluting the database. So what, the, why it was that the telecoms were giving the bad data along with the good data back to the NSA and why that's not a fixable problem remains mysterious to me. So, Charlie, let me just ask you this just for clarity. We know that uh, from your reporting that the um, Trump administration has not been using this program for six months or whatever. We heard this. Or so say uh, this guy. This congressional staffer who also speculated that the Trump administration would not be necessarily want to reauthorize the program. But do we know that the Trump administration is, you know, in favor of shutting it down and they just let it lapse? And so this thing is just going to go away? No, I I think that this decision has not been made yet. It's clearly a decision that's going to be made at the White House by John Bolton, probably the national security advisor, or you know Trump in theory, and what people in the agency may want to do, what they think is worth the effort of trying to make work, or worth the effort of a big fight in Congress that may reopen all kinds of other questions about what the other authorities that might get, you know, reopened for debate as part of a bill that moves through. 
But it may or may not be the same thing that what the White House wants. Well, to one do. quick question: so, How much of this is simply that the terrorists, like many of the rest of us, have moved off making phone calls to using, you know, encrypted messaging apps that aren't going to pop up through this kind of program? That could certainly be a factor in weighing the relative cost of trying to make this thing work and the relative benefits they're getting out of it. And remember, there was at least for surveillance junkies. One of the Snowden revelations that got less attention because the program was already over by the time he disclosed it was a parallel one that goes back to 9-11 in the Stellar Wind constellation of secret programs, just like this phone metadata one, which was email metadata, internet messaging metadata. And they had, this was, this was the one, as I think you, Dan, were the first to write about in 2008 mm-hmm. that had led to the famous 2004 hospital room crisis where the upper reaches of the Justice Department all nearly resigned over a fight inside the Bush administration over whether something was legal about it. And it turns out that that was mainly focused on this Internet metadata program, which, once they changed its legal basis, continued along secretly until the end of 2011, and then was turned off, and then was revealed to have existed by Snowden after 2013. And part of the argument, or our understanding of why did they turn that one off was that the growing use of encryption in transmitting messages from end to end had made it less useful to sit on a switch in the middle of the internet and suck or harvest metadata of emails flying back and forth because they just couldn't tell who the sender and the receiver was anymore. And so there is a history here of programs ending in part just because there's legal issues or controversies, but in part because weighing those costs, the benefits they're getting out of it have been going down because of some technological or behavioral change. Just to be uh, fair to your former colleague, Jim Risen, he and I both pretty much the same time uh, broke the story of the the famous hospital room scene. We're going to let you go in a second because I know you're on deadline. The reason you're on deadline is that the day we recorded this podcast, there was a new story broke on a subject that you and I and Mike all wrote a lot about. It sort of feels like old home week, warrantless wiretapping and drones. So President Trump has uh, issued an executive order on drones. Tell us about that. So at the very end of the Obama administration, Obama decided that uh, the government needed to be more transparent about one of the most contentious aspects of its counterterrorism operations, and that is civilian deaths that arise as collateral damage, bystander deaths from drone strikes and other kinds of airstrikes away from conventional battlefields. So when the military or the CIA is using drones primarily to kill people in tribal Pakistan and rural Yemen and Somalia and so forth, not a a normal war zone. It's suddenly something just blows up and an innocent person is killed or there's an allegation of it. The government should be transparent and say, you know, at least once a year, we, you know, we took X number of airstrikes in these kinds of contexts. We think we killed this many militants and we think we unfortunately killed this many civilian bystanders. And of course, you know, notably, this was going to be a new era of transparency. Notably, he didn't do this early in his administration. He did it late in his administration. So he wasn't the one who was going to have to live under it too long, but he did do it. And they put out a a big retrospective set of numbers at that point. And then they put out right before he left office in January 2017, the first annual set of numbers for 2016. The Obama administration kept that executive order on the books up until today, but blew it off in 2017. 
18, when the report for 2017 was due, they simply didn't issue it. And today, in 2019, Trump has formally revoked Obama's transparency rule. And so the government will no longer be required to do that, which under Trump it was refusing to do anyway, which is tell us how many civilians died as a result well, that, of... So two quick questions, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Two quick mm-hmm. questions. First of all, does this apply to just the CIA drone program or the CIA and the Defense Department's program? So the Obama rule applied to both. And one of the things the Trump White House is pointing to is that since then, in 2017 and 2018, again, Congress enacted and then strengthened a separate law that requires the Defense Department to do some reporting about collateral damage from its operations. Okay. And so they're saying, well, this, this Obama rule was superfluous because look at this law and this report we have to do under it. But that's the catch. The statute only applies to the Pentagon. It does not apply to the CIA. And so what this means is the government is going dark or now acknowledging that it has already gone dark on the question of how many innocent people it thinks it unfortunately so my second que- yeah. targeting terror. So my second question is, why is this so onerous for the Trump administration other than just maybe being embarrassing? They don't want to admit that they're killing civilians sometimes with these uh, uh, drone strikes. I don't know. Maybe it's just a general hostility to transparency. I mean, one of the ironies here is actually the CIA today is carrying out a lot fewer drone strikes than it was in the Obama era. Do, do we know that for sure? Drone strike in Pakistan in over a year. Do we know? Do we know uh, that for sure, so, Charlie? So, what does it mean? Uh, I mean, that's one reason that kind of a little bit lowers the stakes of this. I, Trump could always ramp it up again, but he seems to be primarily in the business of pulling out and disengaging. How, how, how do we know that the drone strikes are a lot fewer? Well, we don't know for sure, but how did we know about them in Pakistan before? Because things would blow up, the terrorists would talk amongst themselves about it, it would make its way into the Pakistani press, and you know it's hard to cover up when something blows up. And there just hasn't been reporting out of Pakistan Mm -hmm. in over a year of any strike like that. Now, things are blowing up a lot still in Yemen. But it's awfully hard. There's so many actors there with the Saudis and the Emiratis fighting the Houthis and the the Americans still there looking at AQAP and so forth. It's hard to disaggregate or attribute this particular explosion to a particular country, let alone a particular agency versus department of that country. I should say that the flaw in all this in the Obama program is the presumption that that we were getting accurate numbers on how many civilian deaths. That is also there's always a question of what is is this a real number? When Obama did put out those numbers, it was really low. It was much lower than even the low end of the estimates that outside groups like Bill Rogio's Long War right. Journal or uh, and, know, and let's remember the, the whole and were put, had been putting out for years. The whole premise of a drone strike is it's because it's in a place where the U.S. military can't get to. That's why we're using drones. So that reinforces the point that we really don't know how many civilians we were killing. The Obama White House didn't know how many civilians they were killing. They begrudged Grudgingly, after many years of talking about this, finally instituted this program. But as you point out, the numbers that they released were widely questioned as to whether how accurate they yeah, were. Not only were they low, but they were also a range. There was not even the uh, the hint of precision. And so the fact that it was somewhere between this and that, yeah. you know, underscored that they, as you, for exactly the reason you're pointing out, 
just weren't in a position so, to so really before, understand everyone who was well, down so there. So before the ex-Obama through. folks go on MSNBC and start decrying and criticizing the Trump uh, administration for ending this program, they should listen to uh, this discussion on our podcast uh, for some oh, perspective. <laughs> well, okay, and I, I think this is a good moment because we're going to let Charlie go yeah. to tout two books no, not yours, Isikoff. <laughs> what am I, chopped liver? Which, which go into great detail on all these issues, comprehensive, definitive books on warrantless wiretapping and drones uh, during the Obama era, Power Wars by one Charlie Savage, and Killer Capture by Dan Clydman. <laughs> okay, you finally got that. Finally. Right, right, the book's right. five years old or something, but I still got to promote it. Charlie. All right, man, thank you so much, Charlie. Uh, good to hang out with you guys both. All right, that was Thanks fun. Take Talk care. Thanks to Charlie Savage for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you on Friday. <laughs>